0: This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV. If you are watching us, you're on YouTube or Twitter. But if we are in your ears, you are listening to The Coindesk podcast network on all the podcast platforms on the planet i'm Jen Sinazzi. i'm joined by zach seward who is looking very comfy today i love this look zach david morris and will foxley hey guys how's
0: the hoodies going on today looking good genuinely great you look very classy
1: thank you thank you you know just trying to keep it classy here on the hash well you got our first story
2: I do. I do. We're going to talk about Terraform Labs, which has been on a Bitcoin buying streak and their stablecoin as well has been shooting through the roof is now the third largest stablecoin, just beat out Binance's stable coin. So it's a pretty big deal. A lot of people are using this stable coin now and a lot of the hopium is funneled into this project as well. We'll see where it ends up uh, by the end of the year, but over 2021 and beginning of 2022, it has just rocketed in market cap. So that's the amount of the assets that are composed within like this entire token it's pretty crazy and we we had a nice story on coindesk talking with tether's paulo arduino about uh, how he sees algorithmic stable coins we'll get into that in the next section but here we have tether and the largest stable coin which has been dominant for years very different construction mechanism than something like Terra. i don't know what you'd say like their their way of thinking about these algorithmic stable coins and how they view them Uh, And he had some words, some choice words about how this is kind of a risky bet. And it is. Algorithmic stablecoins have not done well historically. They've normally failed in some form or function. The only one that has done somewhat well has been the DAI Mm -hmm. stablecoin. And that's probably not even necessarily an algorithmic stablecoin because it has like a pretty simple function behind it. It's more just like an asset-backed protocol that is decentralized Mm -hmm. in, in some sort of sense of the word. Uh, This is a really interesting story, especially as we go forward into the year, seeing what happens with this stablecoin. There's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines jeering at this and saying, this thing's going to explode. And there's a lot of people who are like, no, we figured this out. Like, we got it. We nailed it. Created a stablecoin that's going to survive and doesn't need to have assets backed up into a bank. David, I want to get your take on this before we go forward, though.
3: Yeah, I mean, my first thought is that it's incredible that Tether has found this to be an opportunity to talk down a competitor when really Tether is still an unresolved issue. Obviously, this is old hat, but we still don't have any transparency into Tether's reserves. So it's almost like pick your poison, right? Like if you accept this idea that algos are really risky, which we'll talk more about, you know, USDC maybe is a better option, but like choosing between Tether and UST in that situation is like, do you want to die by firing squad or poison, you know? if you take the skeptical view of those assets. And so uh, I, I think it really speaks to just the nature of the crypto cycle that like the thing that was the horrible, dangerous risk three years ago is now like, whoa, 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 we're the sane, responsible choice. That's my definite first thought. Zach, you're smiling. So I'm going to take that as volunteering to talk. Sure,
0: I'll talk some. Yeah, there's like Stablecoin trutherism just on repeat and it like cycles through new projects over time. I think that's a very apt observation, David, that now USDT, Tether, is seen as the grown up respectable coin. But I do think they, uh, the stablecoin wars are pretty interesting, the stablecoin race to capture a bigger portion of the market share. We had Doquan, founder of Terraform Labs, out there tweeting in very Doquan fashion By my hand, die will die. That's a direct quote and a play on the word. D-A-I, and die, mm. D-I-E, like killing it. He's motivated to take the W here. So there is a lot of interest, I think, in unseating uh, and capturing the stablecoin market right now. And whether that's UST asset-backed, be they crypto assets or dollar assets backing other uh, stables on the market. It's something that people are really paying attention to. I think the thing about UST that is interesting is the relationship with Luna, the token, the underlying token, and how there's a, a direct linkage between how those two tokens function and sort of operate in terms of price. So it's something that you know more people are sort of turning their eyes to as UST becomes the third largest stablecoin in the market. They say, wait a minute, what is this thing? And there's this new discovery cycle and new discovery of, of potential skepticism behind how it actually works. But David, I want to kick it to you for your last thoughts on this one.
3: Yeah, just one last thought on the very important observation about Luna. One of the reasons that, that UST is so particularly interesting and or scary is that the UST Luna arbitrage is built into the layer one chain. Um, a lot of other stable coins are built on top of Ethereum, things like that. But Luna is a stable coin chain. Like that's its main application. However, they've also built a bunch of other stuff on it. There's NFT markets, there's DEXs, there's all this stuff. And if the skepticism about the stablecoin is correct, then the entire ecosystem goes down. We're now transitioning to a broader discussion about why these algos are, are such a concern. We have a, uh, I'm just going to take the transition here. We have a story out yesterday from the, from the Wall Street Journal um, about kind of the general principles of algorithmic stablecoins and, and why, you know, basically finance professionals look at them and they really predict disaster. I guess in a very brief summary, for those who aren't familiar, you know, very broadly, the way UST and Luna work is that when UST drops below its $1 peg, somebody's going to have to correct me here. But basically, you swap between UST and Luna in such a way that it shrinks the supply of one or raises the supply of the other as needed to peg that $1 token. And the problem on one level is that there is no backing there is no anything behind that of course we're familiar with that from coins like bitcoin but this is a little, slightly different and now we have a really complicated situation with luna buying bitcoin using its unbacked algorithmic stable and then trying to work it into its backing system somehow which is adding a whole big mess to the thing the question is now do algorithmic stable coins work at all we've seen iron finance collapse we've seen other smaller collapses Will, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this story is pretty old if you think of terms
2: of the this, this stablecoin, algorithmic stablecoin story. This has been something people have been trying to do for quite literally a decade now, going back to Bitcoin first and trying to build things on top of Bitcoin. And so the Wall Street Journal piece is like nice to kind of tie up like the current conversation about things, but this conversation is quite old. People have been trying to build things on top of Bitcoin, on top of Ethereum, on top of other layer ones and create an asset that can actually be used, like a crypto asset that can be used in everyday life like, as a means of payment. Because Bitcoin, Ether, your layer one of choice, is not used for, as a medium of exchange. And it won't be used as a medium of exchange for quite a while. Look at Bitcoin's transaction fees. They're tiny. It makes up like less than 2% of block rewards over a month. Ethereum, it's too expensive to use it. You're not going to use it that way. So people have been looking at, how can I engineer something on top of this? that I can use as a means of payment back and forth. Lightning just came out with a few different protocols to do this as well. Terra, obviously, there's so many different projects on top of Ethereum. And the problem with them all is that you are bringing two things together that don't work together. And that is crypto assets, the crypto engineering, and the math behind it, and then the meat space. Oftentimes you have to make compromises and those compromises are weak points and those weak points fail. I think March, 2020 was the best example of this where the DAI stablecoin, which was the biggest at the time, uh, perhaps still one of the largest out there in terms of just being like a decentralized stablecoin, it had a problem. It broke. The Oracle didn't give enough information correctly to the layer one. uh, And then the project started falling apart. And they were able to recover, but only because a bunch of VCs came in and backstopped the entire ordeal. And so what you see here is, again, more people in the meat space have to come and fix these decentralized systems because there isn't a perfect solution out there yet. Uh, I don't think that's a reason to like, jeer at these people, though, because it could be really useful. Like I don't want to spend my Bitcoin, but I'd love to spend an asset that runs on top of Bitcoin and has a lot of the properties that Bitcoin does have. A lot of Bitcoin maximalists and other people out there like to, to jeer at these and be like, oh, these are stupid projects, but they're not. They'd be very, very useful and people would use them it would be great to have a dollar that has different properties than the dollar my bank account does that can't be seized by people. It's censorship resistant. It's really cheap to move around. But today, we haven't seen that happen yet. David, I want to give it back to you.
3: Two quick things, I guess. One, I mean, I think that it's important to clarify that the reason people jeer at this stuff is because, on a theoretical level, at least according to certain arguments, they are doomed to fail from the very conception. I think I agree that in principle, it would be nice to to have something like this. But again, skeptics would say that this is printing money from thin air and then hoping that it will maintain value because you're trading it against another money that you printed from thin air. You know, at that level, you can see why people might not think that it's uh, viable. However, and the other thing that I wanted to add, though, Will, is that just I think you kind of were getting there. The reason this is interesting in that meat space crypto divide is that you don't have to have a bank account. You don't have to have an individual. You don't have to have anything that can be targeted by a government or other hostile actor if you have an algorithmic stablecoin. In theory, it's entirely decentralized. And that's really the, the reason people are chasing this goal, although uh, I'm sure the alpha from printing your own money is pretty attractive, too.
1: I was going to ask a question, David. You kind of answered it. And Will, my audio cut out while you were talking. So I'm just going to ask it again. I think if you watch the hash from the beginning to now, you would just see my stable coin journey. I'm still trying to wrap my head around how stable coins can work in everyday life. And I think I understand normal stable coins. We talk about trading. We can talk about remittances. We can talk about reducing risk. When it comes to algorithmic stable coins, when I was reading that Wall Street Journal piece, it was all about risk and uncertainty. And these are unstable stable coins. Can you guys help me understand the story here? Why should we care about algorithmic stablecoins? Why is this such a big story? And why maybe is the Wall Street Journal piece a little bit one-sided? Or is it?
2: Give it to Zach. I want to hear his take on it. Oh, boy. My take
0: on. <laughs> All right, do it again. What's the question, Jen? There's still a question to it. it. What's <laughs> the story? What's the
1: story here around algorithmic I'll tell you the story. All right, so I think the story
0: is, you could call these decentralized stablecoins, right? Stablecoin layer with USDT and USDC, a lot of censorship risk in that layer, right? Mm -hmm. These are projects that ostensibly have dollars in a bank somewhere, operated by known entities that can be shut down on a whim, according to any old government, right? So I think, you know, hardcore crypto adherents are like, Why are we building in this like censorship prone stablecoin layer into decentralized finance? Like, isn't that kind of like defeat the whole purpose of the thing? So, in comes Doquan, in comes Rune Christensen of MakerDAO, and they say, Hey, let's make a stablecoin through various crypto economic dynamics that escapes that censorship risk reality that is sort of existential to USDC and USDT. The market. Doesn't seem to care. The market values USDC and USDT. Those are the two big dogs. But now all of a sudden you have, hey, a decentralized stablecoin that can exist in decentralized finance in a way that escapes some of the possibilities for censoring these transactions on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. I don't know. Did that it that's it, it the make dream. sense, David? That makes sense. That's the dream. But again, you the agreed. dynamics are hard. And sometimes it goes wrong. And that's just why we're here covering this thing day in, day out. It's never not interesting.
3: Okay. Sorry, Zach, but I have to hit you. It's not just hard. It's maybe probably impossible just according to the laws of monetary physics. So that's why this is so interesting to To me is that this is, you know, people criticize it as trying to invent a financial perpetual motion machine. Like that's the equivalent in physics. Maybe it'll last for a while. Maybe the theorists are wrong. But there are some really strong arguments that this will literally never happen. And that as long as a coin like UST manages to appear stable, it's temporary. And that's where the, the systemic risk arguments and discussions become important. It's truly the best time will tell. The, the ultimate cop-out, time will
0: tell. But this is a great one. This is a great time will tell if this system can stand up and in the meantime we get to argue about future. it so it's That's just right. a win win right it's perfect yeah. win-win all, <laughs> all right we're gonna change things and talk about other stuff
1: we are talking about moonbirds so before yesterday i'm not gonna lie i had no idea what a moonbird was i think there are some other people who also felt that way but they brought in 200 million dollars on their debut so the project is the first from proof collective a private nft community led by entrepreneurs Kevin Rose and Ryan Carson. So there was some controversy around the project that we can get into later. There was controversy around the mint price, which was 2.5E, raffle manipulation, and rarity sniping. So all the, all the fun NFT controversies. Well, I'm going to pass this to you first. I always do with our NFT stories. I love I your takes. $200 million. This, th- it, just, it just keeps going.
2: See, this is the pernicious thing about NFTs is some of them pop off like (laughs) rockets. Some of them just go Mm -hmm. straight into the ground and never find a floor price and you are out of all your money. And it's probably like a good uh, 99% or 99.9% to the 0.1% or whatever. It's a very steep cliff between those two things, but it's enough for people to keep gambling on these things. So people will jump into any NFT project they see because they want to be the next million birds. They want to be the next PFP. NFT to go live and do really well. And then you cash out and you're set for life. Like think of all the board about club people who bought into that project, wasn't that expensive at first and they got into it. And now, you know, they're, they're holding a token that is worth $250,000 basically at the floor price. And some of them are worth much, much more celebrities are holding them. You basically are gambling on entering into a different sort of class within crypto, honestly. You're moving from just being like a pleb of like the ICO holders, people on Twitter with like 200 followers who aren't doing much and just kind of joining into the random group chats, playing around with a few coins. And then all of a sudden you have it and you're into the next chat. You're into the next thing. You're in that exclusive club with everybody. And that's why I don't see these NFT things actually going away for a little bit now. I'm starting to reformulate my thinking after a year and a half of being completely wrong. And I think these things could keep going on because people want to do well in these things. They want to have one that pops off until they'll keep putting down money. There's enough money for the market to keep being irrational and keep popping off. David, I want to throw this up to you and get your take though. Uh,
3: Yeah, first, so I I actually, just to add to your point about the the sort of gambling nature of this, probably everybody on the panel here knows Mike Dudas. He's a former entrepreneur. He co-founded The Block, and now he appears to be a full-time NFT investor. Um, And he said that over the last year, all of his gains have come from 5% of his portfolio. So definitely that like gambling aspect of it, which also, you know, in fairness, is how VC and hedge funds work, too. So that's interesting. My thoughts about this, and hopefully we can dive into sort of the details of the manipulation that is being alleged. But my big picture take is uh, I think that this contrast, right, between this project just taking off and the broader NFT market is pretty blasé. I think it just really drives home how important the relationships and connections and the organizational level behind these things increasingly is to how they're received in the market. That can go kind of two ways. There are a lot of, you know, even leaving aside claims of manipulation during the sale, there is a lot of concern that the NFT market is an insider's game, that like if you follow the right people, if you get into the right buys, With other people who are very influential, then you win. Um, And on the one hand, this would seem to affirm that. But on the other hand, that's how investment works. You buy into people who you trust and believe in. I don't know where I land on that, but I think it's an interesting illustration.
0: Zach? I think that's what people are sort of fumbling to articulate when they're like, NFTs are a scam. It's just that dynamic of like, who you know, being early. And then to Will's point, Sort of that weird like frenetic energy of like chasing one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, hoping that it's the 5% of the portfolio that pays off big and that, hey, Moonbirds is maybe the next blue chip NFT. There's sort of this like frenetic energy in the NFT space around that because, again, the fact that there's money attached to these things is really for most people probably what is driving the interest. I think we're having those conversations Mm -hmm. in the NFT world and I think people who are being honest with themselves in the NFT world realize that the money is a feature, not a bug. It's not really the art. may or may not be the community. But if you strip the thing of the money, I doubt that any of this would have legs. And I think what we're seeing yeah. with these things I is gotta again- I got to jump
3: in because I hate the term blue chip NFT. There is no oh my such God. thing as a blue chip NFT. But what are you talking about? about? There's definitely great. blue chip
0: NFTs. There's blue chip NFTs. This is undis- an yeah, industry. Do this not story.
3: do that. But we're doing
2: it. Wait, I got a question. I want to ask everybody. Would DeFi Summer, all the tokens from Summer 2020- have had the legs that NFTs are, if the DeFi summer happened at the same time the Bitcoin bull market happened. So I think like NFTs did really well because Bitcoin was popping at the same time. I wonder if there was like a little bit of a delay on these DeFi tokens. I wonder if they would have done as well and they like continued their momentum. DeFi summer died basically after three to six months, depending on how you
3: count it. Yeah. Will's I the my personal take is that face. DeFi summer was subsidized, so it was never going to go yeah. well. I wanna see a comparison between the two things. I guess that was a bad question,
2: but I do want to see a comparison between those two things because it's like very interesting markets, two like completely new things with DeFi and NFTs, and then also at very distinct times in terms of like where Bitcoin, like the, the biggest and best horse, was running. And I'd love to see some comparison between the two things. I think it's more about the market mechanisms to David's point.
1: I wanna quickly add something to what you said, David. You know, when we see projects like this and we think about the traditional financial market, it really comes down to how much money you have, who you know, what your risk tolerance is, how much disposable income you have. And I think that we see that transferring into the crypto world, even though the ethos is really like, this is for everyone. You know, if you couldn't participate in that traditional world, you can participate here. But the more mainstream we get, the more that ethos is kind of bleeding in to this world. And it's kind of sad. These people who the technology and and these products were made to uplift are still the ones at the bottom of the barrel. But Zach, I think I saw your hand go up.
0: I think it's a good point. I mean, it's just a different group of people, right? It's like the same boogeyman, but in different clothing. I think that's being lost in the conversation. It's like the people who are like balling in the NFT world, they don't necessarily have the markers of like traditional financial success. They just happen to be there early enough where they're benefiting from that. So there's always going to be that subsequent wave of people pointing at the person who made it and saying, oh, I'm mad. And I think we see a lot of that in NFT land.
3: I would also say just that, you know, high risk markets in general, that's just how they work. If you have a large pot of money, you can spread your risk around. And so I don't know how that affects that conversation, but I would maybe say that it's not so much an ethos. It's just the inevitable way something works when you structure it in a way that only 5% of the assets are actually providing returns is that those benefits accumulate at the top.
1: Okay, David.
0: That was a good talk. Uh, that was a good <laughs> chats all around. Good times. Big things only. All right, we're changing gears. I am taking it and I am talking about FinTech M&A, Robinhood, agreeing <laughs> to acquire the UK's Zigloo. Now, Robinhood, maybe doing a little bit of license shopping here, maybe expanding its geographic footprint Ziglu itself is a fairly new entrant to the crypto market, but they have a key UK FCA registration. And that has been a tough ticket to get over in the UK lately. And I think Robinhood saw that. They said, hey, Robinhood here previously tried to set up sort of a UK uh, presence, but decided to put that on hold while they stood up operations in the US on the crypto side. So this breathes life back into a crypto push in the UK markets for Robinhood, which is increasingly becoming a sort of a fan favorite for trading meme coins and other digital assets. I'm gonna throw it straight to Will. Will on the MA side,
2: Robinhood getting in UK crypto. What's going on over there? This is a classic Q story, by the way. You always nail these MA ones. They're important. They're really important Thank to you. know about the space, especially Robinhood as it moves more into crypto. Uh, they have, obviously, like their huge stock portfolio thing where you can just go in. Pick a stock really quickly, onboard yourself, directly via your smartphone. And then they have this huge crypto thing that happened last year, and they also have a decent-sized media arm, so they're really trying to play across all the spectrums of onboarding people into Fintech. And it's interesting to contrast that, again to what we talked about last week which is how many people are able to get into crypto frictionlessly. Tyrone Ross was on the show talking about like different groups in the United States who were uh, buying crypto or if they were interested in crypto or investing in it. And there was a large disparity between Black investors and white investors on a few different things. And he was pointing out why those might be there, how the report was written, how it was issued. And I see a lot of similarities here with what Robinhood is doing by bringing the the barrier down, like taking the friction away from onboarding yourself directly into the new financial economy, and Robinhood picking up these people, these M&A groups, or these, these M&A moves, uh, it's lowering that, that barrier even more. The one thing I will note, though, is still much easier just to get in, on board with crypto if you know how to do it correctly. I think there's like a bit of an education gap, but with Robinhood, you still need a lot of banking information and an address and stuff like that to be able to get into it. Uh, so regardless of how many markets they're able to purchase and open up, there's still going to be a barrier because they, they have a foot within TradFi itself. Uh, Zach, I'll throw back up to you, though, for your take. Robinhood, I think, is definitely becoming a big crypto player, right? They added four
0: coins. I think it was last week, April 12th. Yeah, yeah that's last week. They added Shiba Inu. They added Solana. They added Polygon's Matic and Comp, the big time DeFi summer superstar compounds comp token. So, you know, they had like, I think, seven or eight assets on the platform already. They're adding for increasingly like just trading volumes through crypto. Something that's important to them moves their stock price, right? Oh, you know, stock price sinks on lower trading activity in the crypto realm. You know, Dogecoin people aren't going crazy and buying and selling Doge on Robinhood anymore. So you see that reflected in their stock price. So I think as they look to onboard more tokens, they're looking to onboard more people, And that, I think, will have bearing on their success and the fact that they're also expanding their geographic reach, again, I think shows their commitment to sticking around and making crypto possible for people who use that app.
3: I guess this isn't even really a question, more of something to think about. But, you know, obviously, we're mostly located in the U.S. and Canada, where, like, meme stock trading and crypto speculation are really huge. I mean, relative to the rest of the world, right? This is a big market. And... It's not so much that I wonder whether the U.K. is a valid market for them to pursue. It's that I wonder how those habits have or will spread, not just to the U.K., but around the world. Like, what happens if, like, this whole meme stock, Wall Street bets, Reddit thing goes, you know, global? Is it everybody going to be piling into U.S. stocks is my one question. or or crypto. And what effect would that have? I mean, the UK stock market, I don't think they're going to find the kinds of uh, craziness that you can get from the American stock market. So that is interesting to me just to think about. And I will throw it to Jen for last comments and then wrap
1: up. So I think when you think about the UK, right, their regulatory landscape is quite severe. Why the UK after North America? And I have no rhyme or reason for this, but I think that they might be after the team. And as I was thinking that, I saw probably the third or fourth bullet down in the article mentioned the team at this new company. So I think that they're probably looking to develop some new products. They've acquired this team. And we saw FTX do this, right? They they went after a bunch of smaller companies in different jurisdictions to get those regulatory licenses, which this company has, and also the knowledge power there. So I think that's kind of what's behind this. I think that we can probably see them expand into different jurisdictions quite quickly after this. And I do have a question. Was it Robinhood who launched the customer service line where anyone could call and ask any question? Has anyone tried that yet?
2: Was that Coinbase or was that Robinhood? I,
1: it might've been Coinbase. We'll, we'll uh, check and let it. everyone know tomorrow.
3: Yeah, <laughs> so let's send me good. a phone number. I'll be calling. Coinbase is definitely my first destination for authoritative
0: information about crypto assets. Hundred (laughs) percent. in the YouTube chat. Let's get some calls going. Anyway, uh, thanks for that, Jen. I appreciate that. Do they have Robinhood in Canada? I know things are mysterious in Canada. Do they have Robinhood in Canada?
1: You know what? I actually don't use Robinhood. Hold on. Let me just check right now. What was the one? You don't have like Venmo or
0: something? We don't don't have Cash App.
1: We don't have Venmo. We don't have FTX. I don't have access to Binance anymore. I think that we do have Robin Hood, but maybe not. I'll also let everyone know tomorrow.
0: We don't have finance. Stone though, Age so. up there. I'm surprised they have the I internet. know. All what right. are we doing? We Good still stuff.
1: email money to each other, but that's a conversation we don't, for another day. Think
0: that we, I don't think that we have that. <laughs> anyway, wow. Adventures okay. in North America. They never, never <laughs> fail to amaze. All right. That's it for the show today. Thanks for bearing with us. I'm Zach. We got Will. We got, yeah, Jeff. R. We got P David.
3: We're the hash. To our producer trying to
0: get us to quiet down. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Control. Yeah, sorry, we're supposed control. to finish this show like five minutes ago. <laughs> we'll send the, send the fruit basket <laughs> to Control Room. All right, cool. Uh, check out the podcast. It's on mm-hmm. the Podcast Network. That way you don't have to see our faces. And that's a that's value added for most of us. All right. That was a day. Let's wrap this thing. We'll be back Wednesday. Thanks so much. And bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network.